0: Hello and welcome to the Simply Business Interview Series. I'm your host, John Jennings, and you know I believe that most business owners uh, are working way too hard for much too little, uh, especially uh, in the nonprofit space. And today we get to uh, meet a leader uh, in the in that uh, in the nonprofit space. So uh, looking forward to that. But you know one of the issues is I think we overcomplexify things, uh, and I'm uh, one of my mantras is that I'm a simple man with simple ideas. So, welcome to Simply Business, where we just talk about some of the challenges that leaders face uh, and how we've overcome them. And so today, I'm joined by Roland O'Daniel, who's the CEO of the Collaborative for Teaching and Learning. So Roland, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, why don't you just kick us off by telling us a little bit about about yourself or your background and what who you are and what you do.
1: Thanks, John. Um, so again, my name is Roland O'Daniel. I'm the uh, as as you mentioned, the CEO at the Collaborative. Um, I guess um, I've been a teacher. I, I always say I'm, I've been a, I'm a reformed math teacher, started in 1988, and was looking for a new challenge in uh, the early 2000s. And on a whim, um, I sent my resume into the collaborative and really liked the people that were there. Um, and about six hours of interviews later, really thought they were doing some incredibly Insightful and, and uh, things that pushed the envelope a little bit. So I, I, I took a chance, left my teaching job, joined the organization um, as a math specialist inside of a literacy grant of all things, but not really thinking about just about reading, writing, but thinking about how we support students in reading, writing, speaking, and listening and content. And I'll come back to that in a second because we are a mission, vision, a mission-driven organization, and our our. Um, Vision is an exceptional learning experience for every student. Our mission is supporting teachers and administrators in schools and providing those. And the reason I say that is because I really want all students to have the kind of learning experience I wanted for my own kids. Um, I was lucky enough to have my, my wife and I have four daughters, um, or four, four kids, and uh, uh, you know they they have been able to take advantage of of their education, and I want as many people around the state, around the region to be able to do that as well. So at The Collaborative, we really think about what are some of those big educational issues that we can impact, Um, and then we really do our research and think about ways that make sense to us. We do a lot with arts organization, I mean, arts integration, because it forces people to think differently. So that idea of how do you have people interact with content and the way you would do that is reading, writing, speaking, and listening. I um, mean, that kind of drives a lot of what we do. How do we give people contextual um, interactions with content and then make it fun? Um, you know, we've got five models that, that, um, that we work with schools and districts across the region on, our adolescent literacy model, our adolescent literacy intermediate model, our artful reading model, um and then our procedural fluency model and our post-secondary skills so those those make up most of the work that we do i don't know if that's too much information or not enough
0: it's uh it's fascinating stuff now just uh in full disclosure i I didn't know this before uh, that you're a uh, reformed math teacher i'm married to a reformed math teacher she she did that for many years she's now in banking so she she uh got out of the classroom but she was a uh Outstanding math teacher, and I know she misses it uh, as well. I'm sure you do uh, as well. Uh, and that I've worked is. with uh, one of our local school systems on on some of these types of programs, so uh, yeah. I can feel your passion. And, and uh, uh, what? Uh, tell me what you know. Biggest I- impact that you've you've seen uh, your organization make recently in public school systems? Because I know uh, you know it's an area that we all are. I think we all want. Uh, to be better, uh, and it just seems like trying to—it's f- one of those mysterious things trying to find the magic
1: answer. Uh,
0: and there is no, there is no easy button for sure. Uh, it's one of the one of the phrases I often use in business. There is no easy button,
1: but, but I think that's really—I think that's really key. We, there's one of the hallmarks of the work that we do is we don't do one-offs, right? So you won't see CTL come in and do a presentation. Now, we'll do conference presentations, but we won't come in and do a a training one day and then leave because there's no real impact, right? The hard work starts after that professional learning experience. And so all of our programming is designed so that we work with teachers to go through that next level. And we do a lot of coaching with teachers. You know, I, I, to that point of you, know, you can sit there and listen to Roland talk for three days in a row in the summer. But the reality is when you go back to that classroom and you got to start planning, that's when the questions arise and that's when we want to be there. So we design all of our work to do that. I think the biggest challenge we've seen is, is part of that re- re- reaction to the, to the, to the pandemic. And that is that one, there are fewer teachers um, in the field right now. So there's a shortage of teachers. The second piece is teachers are trying to overcome the, um, all the all the impacts from the pandemic, and and, I, and that, I'm not using that as an excuse, but it is a reality. Um, I think we're now coming through that a little bit. Um, we're we're really t- getting some um, uh, momentum going with some school districts. We're we're working pretty heavily in Jefferson County right this second, and we're really proud of the work that we're doing with the middle and high schools um, in and JCPs. It's the beginning of the work. And, and as you mentioned earlier, it takes time. Nothing comes easy. So what we do is we work with teachers and we work with teachers over multiple years. And there's a something called CBAM, Concerns-Based Adoption Model. And that's how, if you wanna look at systemic change and systems change, all the research is very clear. It takes at least four years, if not six years to really kind of build that culture of where you're gonna do that uh, on a daily basis. It takes a top-down, bottom-up both approach to really get, uh, get teachers and um, school administrators on board. So we, we invest in the long run, right? We're, we're here for the long haul. Um, we're really proud of the fact that we've been working with KDE for the last oh, eight years on um, comprehensive literacy state development grants. Um, we know those are really important for a lot of the districts across the state who don't have a lot of money to invest in professional learning. They're trying to keep the kids in, in school, and keep the kids with school books. And so they have to make priorities. And so those grants have enabled school districts to really think about the programming they wanna bring in and support that work for long-term, three to five-year work. And, and so we're we're focused on how we impact a student's daily experience, and that's the bottom line.
0: Yeah, very good. That's exciting stuff. So I'm gonna turn the turn the attention a little bit now internally to your organization. Um, tell us a little bit about your team. How, how big is it? Uh, and, and tell me, you know, you've been in this role for six or seven years now. So, w- what's been the biggest surprise for you, being that that person at the top of the of the org chart, so to speak, and and uh, having some of the challenges you've had to face? What What would be the biggest surprise you faced?
1: Well, so we have right now about ten staff, um, uh, and we run um, four EPS educational program staff full time. And then we have three or four um, consultants who work with us. Um, So we fluctuate a little bit in that 15 down to, we've been as low in the last couple of years as eight um, and and just begin part of that pandemic issue, um, depending on what projects we're working on. Um, For me, I, I think the biggest challenges I've run into is in a small nonprofit organization, it's, flow and this money flow. And, and how do you look two years down the road and really try to smooth out those highs and lows? Um, I think we've done a pretty decent job. One of the things that when I came on as the CEO that the board committed to was us doing more of our own work. One of the things that we had done previously is we worked with several other organizations in partnership and people knew us as the gear up people or they knew us as the promised neighborhood people. They didn't know CTL even though they liked the work, they, they, did, they knew the projects and not us. And the problem is um, when those projects were over, they didn't call us. They called the people who gear up. They called the promised neighborhood people. And so we were kind of left out. And so one of the things that we've done in the last seven years is to really focus on developing our own models and doing more of our own work wherever possible. That comes with some challenges because you've got to get the word out. And one of the things that I would say is our... our Biggest challenge is we're not very good marketers. Um, some of that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't have a marketing budget, uh, you're not very good at it. Um, but we're working on that and how do we um, get our name out there? How do we get um, our story out there? How do we show the successes we're having? But that's an ongoing challenge, especially for a small organization like us. Yeah, and
0: I've, I've served in some non- several nonprofit roles uh, over the years, and, and there's always that dichotomy. You don't want to be out selling, selling too much because you're not fulfilling the mission. But then if you get locked into fulfilling the mission, then suddenly there's, there's no source of, of revenue and, and you find yourself and, and it's that catch 22 thing. Um, how have you found that balance or have you, are you still working for, you know, looking for it?
1: Well, uh, it always open to ideas. So, so yeah, it, it it's, a it's a challenge. Like one of the things that we do is we hire really smart people. I, I I'm really, um, Proud of the team that we put together at CTL. We've got some, you know, Ashley Perkins, uh, Victoria Miller Bennett, Jen Wright, and Jenny Avery. You all are, are, are bringing great thinking to the table. Um, and one of the things that they they challenge themselves on is how do they get better at some things like social media and and storytelling, and and really think about this idea. We became teachers, not to become salesmen, and and now we have to think about. Uh, how do we how do we adjust that or understand the process? And, and one of the things that a smart um, mentor told me one time is, uh, is sales is not about selling something. It's about helping somebody solve a problem they have. And that's been something that has served me well as I, as I have conversations with people, and listening to people and saying, figuring out what their problems are. And, and I may have something that can help them or we may not have something that can help them. But bottom line is helping them figure out what their problems are. And that helps us. Then help them help their students.
0: So, I, I had a mentor once told me, Every, "Everybody is in sales. You're just not necessarily selling a product, but you're selling your ideas. You're selling your, you know, your personal values, your vision, all that stuff. We're all, we're all in sales to some degree." And that that was hard to understand, especially when I was in corporate IT. You know, <laughs> that wasn't uh, something that came natural. And then later, when I got into sales, I went, "Yeah, it's actually not that different. I'm just now asking for for money instead of." Uh, uh, buy-in or something like that. Uh, sustainability is a word I hear with my nonprofit clients and, and ones I'm uh, uh, involved with. Uh, is that a focus for you? Uh, and I'm not talking about economic or uh, uh, the ecological sustainability. I'm talking about you know the the,
1: the nonprofit sustainability. Um, yeah, that's that's a challenge. I, you know, I, in this in this time period where money is is. Uh, nonprofit money is tight or foundation money is tight. Um, We do a lot of work for fee for service. And that's, that's primarily is what's getting us through right now. Um, Yeah. That keeps me up, you know, 90% of the time when I'm awake at night is because it's the, it's not this year's budget. This year's budget's good. Um, Last year's budget was okay. Um, Next year's budget looks like it's going to be fine. It's the next year after that I don't have where I would like it. And that keeps me up and that idea of sustainability and, and, So we're always looking for what is something we can do to do our work more efficiently, what is something we can do to spread our work, um, and really kind of think about um, that idea of replicating some of that work. Part of the thing that makes us really good at what we do is our people are great coaches, and that's not something that necessarily scales as well. Um, so we have some really smart thinking and things. So we're trying to balance that idea of how do we think about it differently? And I, and it's part of our conversation, you know, you kind of mentioned starting a podcast with some, a way for you to meet new people and do your work a little bit differently. It's still doing the work you want to do, but how do you just tweak it a little bit to, um, get it out there a little bit differently. And, and that's some of the work that we're doing is how do we rethink some of our coaching? Honestly, one of the things that's happened in the last, um, three or four years because of the pandemic is we can do more coaching virtually now. It used to be teachers were really reluctant to do something like this. They wanted you to be there with them. Well, yeah. if we're working in Allesley County, Kentucky, that meant going down for a full day of pre conversations that was not real efficient use of my time, and then either being there for three days to do the observations and then do the post-conversations, well, now we can schedule you know 20-minute blocks and just nonstop on the Zoom and, and spend five or six hours doing that. Um, go down for, you know, in the next couple of days, go down, do my observations, and then um, leave my, you know, scan my notes, send them back to the, to the teacher, and then we can have our post conversation. Much more efficient use of our time. So, that's one of the things that has made us a little bit more efficient. Just something as simple as that, that kind of tweak um, and and people beginning to embrace and acknowledge the technology.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and Yeah, I, I don't, I still do most of my coaching in person because I, I love it, but I'm you know, uh, certainly when I get people who are more than a 20-minute drive away, uh, it, it it becomes uh, very important to get comfortable with doing, doing Zoom. And you, know, uh, you know, we've talked about the pandemic. We talked a little bit about it before, you know, what uh, the, the, the changes it created. But one is that it's made us all more comfortable with this. Uh, how many people do what Zoom was before uh, the yeah. pandemic, right? It's a, a, a whole lexicon, uh, you know, hey, you're muted, you know, is, is a yeah. phrase that people people didn't even know what it meant before.
1: But uh, well, it also opened up for me the opportunity to hire people who are not just local. Um, right. so the, the issue is where do we have the work? And if I've got a really good person who is living in Somerset, Kentucky, or is living in um, Bowling Green who we want to work on a project, I feel much more comfortable now about bringing them on board and not having them have to come into the office very often there's time we want people the team in the office Um, but that has really been an eye opener for us as well again it's efficiencies instead of people spending an hour and a half on the road every day to drive in from georgetown or shelbyville or wherever it is um, they come in uh, strategically and then we just have staff meetings or we just have meetings on zoom and people are getting really good about you know what's the agenda and let's tackle the agenda and have a reason for us to be there and make sure that everybody has a chance to be heard. And I I think that's just, that's again, another evolving piece that helps us be more efficient, therefore sustainability. So uh, one of my favorite questions I like to ask is
0: if you could wave a magic wand in 12 months from now, like everything could be lining up perfect. What what would be different about your organization?
1: Well, that's a great question. That's a really good question. There's a there's from the organizational perspective, we've got some again, we've got some really smart thinking around procedural fluency, and procedural fluency is the idea of how do you add, and subtract, multiply, and divide efficiently. Um, and and we've been working in that arena for a couple of years now. The results of the pandemic was bad was hard on students, but the impact on mathematical reasoning as a result of the pandemic is flying under the radar on most people's um, thinking. They're, everybody noticed that the reading scores are down, but math scores were, took a, an incredibly hard hit. Yeah. And what we're really finding now is that conceptual understanding of the students um, took an even bigger hit. They may still be able to do some of the um, procedures, but they don't really understand what they're doing. If, if, I, if I knew everything was lining up in the next 18 to 20 months, that that program would really be having the impact I think it should have or can have across all different grades, starting in kindergarten, going all the way up through fifth grade, but all the way even into middle school, especially with those students who are struggling because we know the impact that students who have that conceptual understanding, they have a higher trajectory in mathematics. And we know reading is important for life, um, but you can have a million dollars of impact on a student, um, on a high poverty student who has strong math skills. They can have a bigger impact from a math perspective than they do from a reading perspective. So we don't want to lose track of that. So I think if if 18, 20 months things were lining up, I would see that program really taking off because our literacy work is well found that it's already kind of taking off and doing what we expected it to do. I'd like to see that level of work um, also come out of that, come out of our organization.
0: That's awesome. I, I'm a math guy myself. I've I'm minored in it. And I, and my math, ta- my wife taught it, so uh, we're we're a, we're a math family. My daughter's an yeah. engineer. Yes, and, so. and,
1: and you know it's, it's not. It's not rocket science, it, it, and, and I you know I think one of the things I like about the work that we're doing with procedural fluency is it's it's elegant it's eloquent and it's simplicity. Um, you you think about how you incorporate just different representations with students, giving them contextual understanding, but then it's game based practice. Kids are not going to study their math table facts, but they will play games. And if you if you design the games well, um, then they will engage with it. And we're, we're working with some high poverty students in Jefferson County. Um, it's part of some, some uh, intervention programs, and they love it. Like, one of the best things that's coming out of this is they want, want to, they want to come to class to do this work, as opposed to, I don't want to go to math class because I'm not going to be successful. That idea of how do you change that mindset, that's so important, especially for young students. And so, um, you know, I, I, it, I'm, I'm biased. I think we do good work. And, and so I think that's something, again, if I could look 18 months down the road, that's where I'd love to see that kind of blossoming. That's awesome. I, I hope I uh, hope that comes true for you. I I'd like to end with one
0: question and ask this of all all the people I interview: uh, if if you're talking to some aspiring young uh, person who's wanting to uh, to start a nonprofit, start something uh, that uh, means something to them, uh, what what words of advice would you give for them? You know, someone who's now been in this role now for several years.
1: So I'll, I'll give a. a- quick snarky response. And, uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who started her own nonprofit about six or seven years ago. And the first thing I told her to do was not to do it. Um, I knew that's what you were going to say. It's a lot of work and, and, and that it's a lot of uncertainty. And luckily she knew we, I wasn't serious and, and she buckled down and did it. I would say this, um, if you want to start a nonprofit because you're passionate about something, that's, the first thing you need to be passionate but then you need to put your passion to the side and it needs to be a business and you need to think about sustainability um, so it's great that you're passionate about this for a year two years five years ten years but if you don't build a good structure underneath that um, when you leave then that impact leaves and that's something that is so critical and you asked me, Um, If I was a founding uh, uh, CEO at the collaborative, and no, in fact, I'm the third CEO, and a lot of small nonprofits don't survive the founder leaving. And so I think our founder, Linda Hargan, did a nice job of setting a good structure in place and working the structure along with the content. And if I were going to talk with somebody who wanted to start one, I would really encourage them to make sure that they are working hard and are passionate, but they're building a structure underneath them. Excellent. Yeah.
0: That, it's, that's some great stuff, Roland. I, I really appreciate uh, appreciate that. I appreciate your time, and I appreciate what you do. Uh, this is Thanks. really uh, close to some of the passions I have. Uh, is there a way people can get in touch with you if they want to learn more about the collaborative? Uh, when,
1: about yeah, that? so the Collaborative for Teaching Learning is a really long name. If you can remember that, great, but um, we're online at ctlonline.org, or we're CTL online on all of our social media, so we um, can be found there. Um, that's the easiest way of getting in touch with me. So yeah, our ctlonline.org is our website. Excellent. Well, I, I
0: wish you the best. I I hope that uh, magic wand happens. And to uh, anyone who's watching this, I, I hope you uh, appreciate everything that, that Roland and his team is doing. And I look forward to seeing you in our, in our next episode. John, thanks a lot for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity to come on. Absolutely.